นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสัAs usual, on the first Saturday of the month, I like to consider the text that's on the calendar page that we have, our, <coughs> our um, calendar that we put out, and many of you will have probably read Ajahn Chah's um, words on finding happiness. Um, I'm sure it's. Um, Well, it's a very obviously a very relevant subject. All of us want happiness, but uh, the uh, kind of rather challenging thing is that uh, most of the time, for most of us, whatever happiness we do find, it doesn't tend to last very long, and then we end up with unhappiness, and that's not what we're looking for. So then we look for more happiness, and we get a little bit and. That doesn't last, and it disappears, and then we get more unhappiness, and and this thing goes round and round in circles, and um, it's a rather uh, tedious thing that we have to put up with, and then we get exhausted, and then we die. And the um, the Buddha Buddha saw this going on. Well, this looked like a pretty raw deal. Um, is there any alternative? And of course, lots of people have been asking this question. For a long time, and uh, as we all know, the uh, Buddha went after the experts around at the time, the spiritual teachers, and saying hey, something along the lines, "I'm looking for this unshakable happiness," and and they said, "Oh yes, I can show it to you," and they tried their best, and whatever they showed him didn't really um, give him what he was looking for, and so he ended up having to find out for himself, which thankfully he did. And so, this um, unshakable happiness that the uh, Buddha realized is not—it's not not, uh, not, a, not a belief system. It's not a result of of believing in anybody else or any doctrine or any such thing. In fact, uh, as far as the Buddha was concerned, this unshakable happiness is the natural condition uh, of our consciousness, us human beings here and now. Us human beings, the natural condition of our consciousness, when it's freed from all the distortions and disfigurements that come as a result of ignorance, then what we've got left is this unshakable happiness. And so, well, then it'll be you. But as far as I'm concerned, that's very good news. Uh, I remember thinking what a great relief it was when I came across these teachings. That it's not like you're lacking. You know, I was brought up. With some sort of a message that um, there was something wrong with me, and I had to get something more. I had to do something to improve myself. But coming across the Buddhist teachings, um, the message is quite different. He said, "No, it's not. You have to get more. In fact, you've got to get less. You got too much. You got these habits 
which are getting in the way of what is potentially really wonderful. And so uh, the Buddha's teachings are um, a very skilled, uh, precise discipline for the realization of this unshakable happiness. We can read the Buddha's teachings and we can uh, get a, a feeling for this and we can have faith in this and we can be inspired by this and maybe we meet some great teachers who've realized this unshakable happiness and we can think, well, that's wonderful. But if we just grasp at the idea of this unshakable happiness, well, that's not it. And that's certainly not what the Buddha was wanting us to do. Uh, that's what a lot of religious systems are about, holding up an ideal and we can believe in such and such and that belief system itself or that belief, that activity of belief uh, creates a very good feeling and, and it can be better than being depressed and so uh, some people maybe settle for that but the Buddha didn't want us to settle for that. He wanted us to, in fact... He didn't want us to believe in the idea of unshakable happiness. He wanted us to investigate the whole pursuit of happiness. What are we doing when we're looking for happiness? And what do we do when we get uh, some happiness? So, for instance, uh, today, uh, Ajahn Punya tells me there was a very lovely uh, gathering. Well, I was there this morning down at the lake. Uh, There's a good bunch of people down there helping out on our late day project, uh, clearing and strimming and weeding and nurturing and participating in this group activity of, of uh, cultivating a, a sanctuary, the, uh, the lake project, and it's a great thing to be a part of. And on a totally glorious, cloudly, cloudless, blue sky day like today, well, there was a good amount of conventional happiness around, a very pleasant thing to be doing together. And this conventional happiness certainly has its place. Um, but as we all know, as I was saying in the beginning, well, this conventional everyday happiness doesn't last. Um, it wasn't that long ago, I was down the lake there and it was thoroughly miserable. It felt like this... Winters never go to end. I mean, you know, it's like this, you can forget about it. My forgettery, thankfully, is very good. Sometimes my forgettery is better than my memory. And I, you know, I forget how miserable it was just a few weeks ago, just oh, day after day of cold, wet, miserable, grey Northumberland weather and nobody around to make me happy and no beautiful green trees and no lovely wildflowers. It was just drich and depressing down there. And so it is with conventional everyday happiness. It's got its place, but it's not the goal. Um, but then there is slightly more subtle happiness. And, and actually on the, um, the photograph on the page of July, those of you that looked at our calendar, there's a, a gorgeous uh, photograph of uh, some of our nuns at Amrawati. It was the... Uh, just following the ordination of the Sri Lankan nun, Sister Kemika. And uh, a few weeks ago I was talking to her, well she was talking to me, she, 
she uh, approached me about this photograph of uh, her ordination that I'd used on the calendar and was, was commenting on how glad she was that, that it got used and how surprised she was that the photograph even got taken and, and that it actually, uh, she felt it seemed to capture a little of the spirit of the moment. And uh, so we were talking about, well, what was actually going on? Uh, you know, you look so happy. And uh, those of you that have seen the photos, it's a gorgeous, radiant uh, picture there of um, Sister Chemica. And she told me how at just the moment that, uh, well, a friend of the monastery, Belinda, was uh, taking this photograph, one of the other nuns had approached her and and asked her, you know, this the ordination had just finished. Uh, she had just joined the order of Sila and one of the other nuns said, how are you feeling? And, and she said this spontaneous, heartful expression of, oh, I just feel like I've climbed on this, this vehicle or this vessel. And uh, these were the, the, the expressions. She, she was saying how the ordination as a nun just gave her this feeling of joining something that, that was so gladdening, so nourishing, and, and there's this wonderful sense of delight that she had climbed onto this Dhamma vehicle, and it was a, a great joy for her. And, and you can see the, the, nuns, the nuns there together sharing this moment of joy, and certainly that, um, that is a more refined form of happiness. I'm sure all of us have some sense of of what it's like to be in spiritual companionship. You know, I mean, yeah, working down the lake is great, you know, but actually when you're just with dumber friends being quiet together and you know you share an understanding, you share an aspiration or, or the joy of, the joy of, uh, of clear dumber teachings, I can still remember when I think back to what it was like when about, what I, I don't know, 20 years old or something and before I came across Dhamma teachings and, and what it was like, you know, how this sense of, of not really feeling I had an orientation in my life. I didn't really feel I had a direction. And, and then coming across Dhamma teachings, going on my first meditation retreat, and realizing not, not only is there this wonderful teaching that you're allowed to question, and the more you question, the better, but never, no matter how much you question, you can't find fault with it. But not only that, but also you've got these spiritual exercises which you can do which actually discipline attention to the point where you start to experience life in a different way. You, you discover what it's like to have a relatively peaceful mind, and, and this is something distinctly new. And so there's, um, I would suggest that there's another level of happiness, one could call spiritual happiness, of spiritual friends, companions, clear teachings. Even this is not what the Buddha was holding up as the goal. What the Buddha was holding up as the goal is what Ajahn Chah was talking about in the text that goes with that beautiful photo. And he says in that text, he said, well, he says, use Dhamma to find happiness. Whether right or wrong, don't cling blindly to any experience. Simply note it and lay it down. 
And when the heart is at ease, then you can smile. And the kind of ease that Ajahn Chah is talking about there is the, when he says, when the heart is at ease, is when the heart is freed from all clinging. And so I think in our consideration of happiness, this is, this is not necessarily something that would automatically occur to us. I mean, the habit we have, the habits we have, of, is if something agreeable comes along, we want more of it. So, as I was saying at the beginning, the Buddha wasn't asking us just to believe in unshakable happiness or to be delighted that we maybe meet some people who've realised unshakable happiness, but to investigate what is the quality of happiness that we have. Is it unshakable? The common and everyday garden variety happiness we have or the more refined happiness of a little, little kind of agreeable experience in meditation. What do we do when we have such experiences of happiness? And, and so the Buddha is asking us to bring mindfulness to this. And if we do bring mindfulness to this, then what we hopefully, slowly but gradually going to realise is that we have this habit of when conditions are agreeable, we cling. And in clinging... We spoil it. Now, if we haven't cultivated a little wise reflection or we haven't done meditation, maybe we're not aware of this, but this is the value of meditation that when we exercise the discipline of attention and the mind starts to get a little peaceful, then you start to be able to see for yourself. You're sitting there and there's not much happening and then something arises in the mind, even if it's something agreeable, like a beautiful memory, if we move on it, it's a disturbance. We lose the peace of mind, and then we start to get the intuition that this habit, we start to get a feeling for this habit of clinging is not what it looks like. As we grow up as children, well, you know, the children, you know, it's sweet food, we cling to that, and our nice friends, we cling to that, and... Unfortunately, most of us don't get the kind of education that teaches us to be cautious about clinging. And so we just think that this is what you do. And since everybody else around us is doing it, we, we become really experts at clinging and, and trying to get more of what we find agreeable and trying to get rid of what we find disagreeable. But then little by little, this momentum of this cycle just gets faster and faster and then we get more stress and then we start taking some sort of medication to deal with the consequence of the stress and distracting ourselves. We go on holidays to distract ourselves and that just adds more stress and it doesn't work. But hopefully, or thankfully, if um, we do come across a teaching which encourages us to turn the light of attention inwards and reflect on this, Reflect on this whole process that we learn very early on in life. This, this thing that clinging to happiness is going to give us more happiness until we can see it doesn't. You know, I often reflect on an experience in my early life when um, I, had, um, I, I, really, I really cared for my grandfather. My, my grandfather was a lovely old man from Yorkshire. and um, He was a padre the Reverend Wilfred Duncombe, and a uh, lovely old man. And um, 
And I remember one day he took me into the living room in our, in our house and he said, I've got something special for you. And he knew that I liked butterflies and moths and things. And we went into the living room and there on the back of the couch was this beautiful moth or butterfly, I don't remember now, and he'd stuck a pen right through it. Well, he thought he, thought he was doing me a favour because he thought I liked moths and butterflies, which I did, but he'd, he'd stuck a pen through it so that I could keep it. You know, and this is the kind of the, the attitude we often have to something that's beautiful. We want to grab it, but in grabbing it, we kill it, we destroy it. Uh, this butterfly was beautiful, but once you stuck the pen through it, well, you rather spoiled it somewhat. What you've got is something that's sort of beautiful, but it's dead. Yeah. And this is so often what we do with our experience in life also. There's these beautiful impressions arise in the mind, and instead of simply allowing them to be, to come and go, we grasp at them, and we do it out of habit. We don't even know what we're doing a lot of the time. So we have this encouragement of the teachings to, yeah, well, to the the benefit of meditation, to to slow the mind down, to see if we can get a bit of a perspective on this compulsive activity of the mind and start to remember what, in effect, is a, a very natural state. And so anybody who has done meditation to to any degree, or maybe come across some conventional sense of peace and calm and the natural happiness that comes from that. And it is natural. It's not like fabricated. It's not like watching a, a movie or listening to some amazing music or whatever. It's, it's just there. You're not doing anything. And there's this natural sense of peace and ease and happiness. Or like with children. So with children, I mean, you notice how children are all sometimes, well, sometimes they're not, you know, giggly, but a lot of the children are so giggly and they're just loving life and there's a sparkle and you can't help but get off on it. You know, what is it? That's well, natural. It's not like they're watching a movie. <laughs> Everything's an amazing experience. Why? Because, because, why? This is very important. Why are children, why do children have, what is that natural happiness that children have got? It's because their consciousness is not yet burdened with this nightmare of egoity, this nightmare of believing in a solid, substantial personality. They haven't fallen prey to this hideous nightmare yet. But of course they do. We all grow up and by about the age of seven... We've got this differentiated sense of me and you and the world. And uh, we develop it over the next few years. And it just gets more and more painful. And then we lose contact, we lose connection with this natural sense of happiness more and more. But then somewhere around mid-adolescence, this wonderful thing happens. Like um, something like maybe we start to doubt the whole thing. And before about mid-adolescence, we're so totally caught up in it. You know, it's all sort of animal, really, reactive. Loving and hating and picking and choosing and so on. And, but then something happens around mid-adolescence whereby maybe we fall in love and then kapow, your whole world is turned upside down. Or maybe somebody dies. 
something else. But whatever, something starts to question in the mind. We start to question the way things appear to be. And this is a wonderful thing, this doubt. Unfortunately, most of us don't have spiritual advisors around to teach us to value this doubt. Maybe they just give us some more essential distractions if they're in the process of, in the business of marketing such things. Or maybe they give us a belief system which they hope will be some sort of a compensation for the pain of doubt. But if we have the good fortune to come across the Buddha's teachings, what we're encouraged to do is to not dismiss this opportunity to question the way things appear to be, but to embrace it, to use mindfulness to learn to value this questioning, to value this natural intelligence that's saying, don't believe in the way things appear to be. This thing, this idea, this story that you've been told that to be happy you've got to get what you want. This is a con. This is a con. This is a lie. This is a big lie that we've been taught by those around us, not because they meant to lie to us, but because they didn't know any better. That's what they believed. And then our senses tell us that. The more you get what you want, the more happy you're going to be. But it's just not true. So when this great doubt starts to occur to us, whatever stage of life, when we start to question the way things appear to be, this is actually very precious. This is valuable. And so when we, if we eventually start to question even common and garden variety happiness, like, you know, like, I mean, how many movies do you want to go and see before you get bored with going to see movies? Or... How much cheesecake do you want to eat before cheesecake gets boring? Or, you know, it's just it's really just so boring, so tedious when we start to question it. And so the investigation of happiness is our task, not just believing in happiness. And we don't have to be afraid of this. Now, sometimes people will, um, sometimes people hear the Buddha's teachings. Uh, on impermanence, like teaching about happiness is impermanent and life is impermanent, and they maybe get afraid. It's quite normal that um, people feel like if their story that they've believed in all these years is feeling threatened, then they start to feel afraid. And so it is true, we do need to be careful how we talk about these teachings. You know, sometimes one can get a little evangelical about the Buddhist teachings and, and people who are not ready um, to hear them. Um, well, we, you know, we, we shouldn't be ramming it down their throats. And there's an example in the teachings where, <clears throat> where the Buddha, if I remember correctly, admonished the monks for giving the teachings on the Four Noble Truths to some people who were hungry. If people are hungry, if people not, don't have some basic contentment, some basic feeling of of goodness, and you then give them the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, well, probably they're not going to hear it. There are a lot of teachings. There's um, there's, uh, an example where the Buddha's talking about addiction to sensuality, and he said it's it's like a leper who is suffering from the terrible 
pain of etching sores that come with leprosy and to get a break from the pain of the etching, they put their arm over the burning hot coals of the fire and the pain of the burning hot coals gives them some relief from the pain of the etch of the leprosy. And the Buddha is pointing out that this is actually the nature of uh, human beings who are attached to sensuality. We think that by gratifying sensual desire that we're going to actually be happy when in fact we're in fact damaging ourselves, making ourselves worse. Well, while this is true, uh, yes, uh, you've got to be careful who you point that out to uh, because people may not be ready to hear that. And so in our own investigation of happiness, uh, I would uh, recommend that we're cautious about how we set the goal in our practice. You can hear the teachings, you can read about the teachings, and you can believe in unshakable happiness and hear what the Buddha said about it. But if we ourselves are not ready, then we can make our condition worse. And so uh, last week, was it last week, Ajahn Kemavaro gave a talk about practicing with happiness. He was pointing out not to just hold on to the idea that when I practice, eventually I'm going to become happy, but to make happiness the way itself, to engage happiness here and now, to find ways of bringing about everyday happiness. Yes, we might believe in transcendent happiness, but, uh, well, I, I know I've met... I've met monks, well, not just monks, I've met lay people as well, who carrying so much pain in their life that the way they engage Dhamma practice actually makes them more miserable. And this is a mistake, that um, if we're still, if we're already burdened with a lot of suffering, then to, for instance, contemplating the Four Noble Truths or contemplating death can in fact make things worse. There is a place for everyday common and garden variety happiness and making much of it. And so whatever our situation in life, whether it's living in a spiritual community, uh, whether it's living in a uh, householder's life, uh, whether it's in daily life practice or whether it's in formal practice, to, to use this contemplation of happiness um, to, in, to remember this contemplation of happiness uh, and to make much of it. Not to wait until uh, sometime in the future when we imagine that we're going to become happy. And sometimes the situation we find ourselves in might be very disagreeable. And we then imagine, well, sometime in the future this disagreeability is going to pass and then I can become happy. Well, from the Buddhist perspective, the aim of practice would be to bring mindfulness to this situation, not just to believe in happiness in the future, but to look at this situation, our pursuit of happiness. If our pursuit of happiness is getting rid of unhappiness, well, does that take us to peace? No, we just spend all our life trying to become happy. 
Whereas, from the perspective of mindfulness, unhappiness itself, investigating unhappiness itself, can be the cultivation of happiness. Sometimes, you know, Ajahn Chah used to uh, put a lot of emphasis on community life. And, and community life is not always easy. Or living in a committed relationship is not always easy. Sometimes our addiction to happiness means that when the good bit passes, we, we're out of there. Like in a, in a relationship, the initial part, there's mar- marriage, romance, whatever in the beginning, and then when the good time passes, then I'm out of here, go and find another one. Or in the monastic life. In the beginning, full of enthusiasm, found a teaching that really works and inspiring company and so on. That, that energy brings a lot of happiness, guaranteed to change, it will change. And then there's unhappiness. Well, if our commitment is not to the investigation of reality, if our commitment is not to seeing beyond the way things appear to be, then we can mistake that opportunity, we can miss that opportunity. And we just default to our fantasy of what it used to be like when I was getting what I want and in the future what it's going to be like when I get what I want again, which is agreeable circumstance. Whereas our cultivation of happiness is actually looking at this, feeling this. What kind of awareness does it take to be able to accommodate this when this is totally disagreeable? What kind of awareness does it take? Not the kind, it doesn't take the kind of awareness that's still committed to preference. Yeah. And this is important. Like even with our meditation practice, when we, if we engage in our meditation practice with an attitude of I'm going to become peaceful because that's what happened last time. You know, maybe we do meditation and get a little peace and then we come back to it. I want that peace again because it made me happy. If we approach our meditation with that attitude, maybe we get a little bit for a while, but then we won't get it. We just get frustrated. But if we're investigating our attitude to the pursuit of happiness, we see that. And that's the purification of awareness. That's the purification. Only because we see it, not because we believe it, but only because we see it. In that moment, we see where we are preferencing happiness over unhappiness. Like in that text by Ajahn Shah, whether you're right or wrong, don't cling blindly to any experience. It could also be whether it's agreeable or disagreeable, don't cling blindly to any experience. It's very important that he says don't cling blindly because sometimes you say don't cling. People say, oh, I'm not allowed to hold anything. No, no, it's not about not allowed to hold anything. You're not allowed to hold anything. How can you have a cup of tea? You know, to have a nice cup of tea, you've got to hold the cup. But you don't cling to the cup of tea. I and mean, if you cling to the cup of tea, well, that gets very boring because, you know, then you can't do anything. You're clinging to your cup of tea. So you don't cling blindly to anything. You pick up the cup of tea, you have a nice cup of tea, then you put it down, and then you go and pick up a pen and write a nice letter, or you pick up something. We hold things, but we hold them mindfully. And likewise with pleasure. And with pain, with agreeable and with disagreeable, with being right and with being wrong. 
We hold them, but how do we hold them? If we hold them in what the Buddha was talking about, a skillful, mindful way, well then it takes us to another sort of happiness, a natural sort of happiness. If we hold them in a heedless condition, preferenced way, this is what I want, I'm going to hold on to it, well, we don't just believe anything about that, we investigate, we look at what actually happens when we do that. Until little by little, we start to get the message that any, any holding to anything, holding to any, even any view or opinion, even spiritual views and opinions, like Buddhism is best, which I happen to believe. I happen to believe Buddhism is the best religion that's ever been invented. Now, I believe that. But if I hold to it, well, then when I meet Christians and Muslims and Jews and Hindus, I've got a problem. <laughs> now, I do believe it, but what do we do with that belief? We were discussing yesterday um, how the, the Buddha's teaching on how uh, the Buddha pointed out that often it's the case that, that householders tend to fall out with each other over objects of sensual desire, like food or who's got the, the best car or who's got the most friends on their Facebook account or whatever. And, uh, but then he said, he was talking to monks, I guess, at the time, and anyway, he said, anyway, monks tend to fall out with each other over views because we don't have so many sense objects. And... And this is important, this is an important teaching because even if we, you know, we get, start to get a little spiritual and we start to let go of some of our coarser um, objects of clinging, we could be clinging to our views, yeah. like Buddhism is best, or like I know, yeah. or like my confidence. You can start to get a little perspective on practice and on life and on understanding, you start to see a few things and... And then a natural sort of confidence comes with that. But if we've still got the habit of clinging and we don't catch it, we're not smart, we're not quick, we're not there for it, we cling to that feeling of confidence, which is bound to happen, by the way. But then the important thing is that when it goes, we don't just then cling to the loss of the lack of confidence, which is the big risk. In fact, I was talking to a, a very dear friend this morning on the phone and she has just undergone a serious operation, massive operation, and she was saying, I've lost all my confidence. She's been practicing for years, and, and um, I said, well, you know, very cautiously, because you, know, you don't want to start getting all preachy to somebody who is suffering, and if I'd undergone an operation like she had, maybe I, I wouldn't be in a very good state either. So I was very cautious how I pointed it out to her, but I did say, because she's committed to Dhamma practice, she's not just into telling fairy stories about life. So I pointed out to her, I did say, I said, well, if the confidence was real, you wouldn't lose it. The only thing we lose, the only thing that passes away, is that which is transitory. So if it's real confidence, you don't have to cling to it. If it's real happiness, we don't have to cling to it. I think this is a helpful reminder uh, in our practice, that if it's real, we don't have to cling to it. But this is a real challenge to our habits. To the habits of what? The habits of egoity. You know, this habitual pattern of mental formations that we developed, most of us, many years ago now, uh, 
And we developed this thing called me, and we've operated out of it for a very long time. It is committed to preferencing. Me and mine, my liking, my disliking, my choosing, picking and choosing all the time. Well, again, the Buddha wasn't asking us to stop believing in it as if the, an ego doesn't exist. Very sadly, uh, often Buddhists do this. They demonize ego as if there's something wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with ego. Ego is just a conventional pattern of mental formations. It's, if you didn't have one, you'd be, um, you'd be medicated and probably locked up. We need this conventional perception of individuality. That's that's normal. That's how the mind develops. But what's important is that we don't believe this is who and what we are. Picking and choosing is natural. Preferencing is natural. Agreeable conditions are preferable over disagreeable conditions. That's natural. But do we have to cling to these conditions? And does clinging make us happy? That's the question. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.